Let's do a little bit of an overview, and before we do, let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for leading us to your law and your gospel this morning, and then to your table. Pray that you would help us to understand a little more today how all that also um, converges in your message to the churches through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, The focus, really, of the book of Revelation will never come into our minds unless we realize it's about Christ. It's not about Israel and oil in the Middle East. It's not about uh, the rapture and the, you know, when, when is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? What you have in the book of Revelation is snapshots of things that are happening simultaneously between Christ's two comings. Don't try to figure out historically, you know, what chronological things are going to unfold in history from the book of Revelation. That's not the point. Uh, It's really showing how what is being done in heaven is being done on earth. And that will become clearer as uh, Chuck opens up the rest of the book uh, to us. Uh, I also mentioned that these are uh, edicts, not letters. These, uh, the form that, uh, you know, Hear ye, you know, this, this, is what, this is what Caesar says, or this is what his ambassador says. That's the language that uh, Jesus uses here to the churches. So it's not letters, really. It's edicts. And he wants to make it clear that he is Caesar's Lord. <laughs> he is the king of kings, and he is issuing an edict, not exactly something that Caesar would like other lords to be doing. Uh, But uh, Jesus happens to be Yahweh as he's praised in uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 5 through 8. Then you have that vision of the Son of Man taken from Daniel 7 and uh, and 10, which has puzzled the rabbis for time immemorial because they bow down and worship this son of man. Who is this son of man? Um, He's not Yahweh. Good Jews don't usually bow down to anybody but Yahweh. (laughs) So who is this son of man? And clearly it's it's, it's an epithet not only of referring to Jesus' humanity, but primarily actually to his deity. And what you find here is... Jesus, uh, Jesus saying uh, to the recipients, fear not. He doesn't say, don't bow down to me. Do not worship me, John. Uh, later in Revelation, an angel appears. And John bows down to the angel. And he, oh, don't do that. I'm a fellow messenger. I'm not God. Don't do that. But not here. It's not, don't do that, it's fear not. Don't be afraid, but you're doing the right thing, bowing down to me because I am the Lord. Seven, we talked about how sevens are all over the place. Seven is the number of completion. That was true in the pagan world as well as in Christianity. Uh, They took over, you know, whatever, uh, God takes over all kinds of things that he has set in place in his providence uses them to try to 
draw people and explain things to people who already have these numbers in their mind. And seven is a number of completion. Uh, the seven spirits who are before his throne aren't ghosts. They are, they are uh, pastors. The seven angels, they're pastors. Uh, uh, they're, they're ministers. They're not apostles, but they're messengers. And angelos means messenger. So, uh, you know, they are... They're not angels in the, in, the, in the supernatural sense. They are angels as messengers. That's their primary purpose as pastors, is to be messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we looked at uh, the, the, these letters as a microcosm, really, of the whole book. Uh, really testifies to the rationale for this revelation uh, in, in Ephesus, you have the inward church. So letter number one, or edict number one, was to Ephesus, uh, where John lived before he was carted off and put in prison on the Isle of Patmos, just off of, uh, off of the Turkish coast. So this is Turkey, by the way. I hope no one here is Turkish. But that's Turkey, uh, according to the... Uh, artist's imagination. Um, Paul also refers to some of these angels, Tychicus, who's running around delivering letters. A lot of times the minister uh, is very busy, not only with his particular flock, but running around with these messages from church to church. Like uh, our consistory would meet, pass on that message of what the results were from our our consistory meeting to classes, and uh, you know everybody in classes would get a report of of what happened in classes, and it, these are all reports. These are all keeping up. Now Jesus Himself is giving an edict to these particular people to take around and circulate. Ephesus is the inward church. Ephesus is really good at preaching the word, administering the sacraments. And discipline. They hate the Nicolaitans. I'm glad he throws in a, a positive message. You hate the Nicolaitans as much as I do. Now, the, the, we don't know much about this group, but it seems to, to be that they were, like some of the others he t- talks about, uh, they, they were compromisers. They were people who thought that you could, you could be a Christian inwardly, but outwardly participate in the Roman cult. And uh, so, they, no, no, no. Nope. They were, they were very strict about that. But they didn't preach the gospel outside their four walls. And so they were faithful in getting it right, but not faithful in getting it out. Uh, a church that, that has the marks of the church doesn't just have the marks of the church for the, for, the, for the members, but for the world. Preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments is the Great Commission. So it, that's what we're involved with. That's what we're engaged with. Uh, not, it's not a club. It's something that we're doing to highlight the gospel outside. As, as Emil Brunner said, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. 
Isn't that a great line? The church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. And so Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand. Why? We're doing everything right. Well, you're not bearing testimony to me. Uh, you're, 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 not, you're not reaching the lost, and that's why your lampstand would be removed. You're a lampstand, light to the world. If, if the light goes out, then I'm going to take the lampstand away. And then Smyrna is the suffering church. Modern day Ismir. And it was the suffering church. Immediately after John wrote these words, one of his, one of his uh, beloved disciples, Polycarp, uh, was burned at the stake after being uh, tortured by wild beasts. And uh, he was the teacher of Irenaeus. Uh, so the, the Smyrna is a very important place where there were a lot of Jews and they had been cast out of the synagogues, as Jesus prophesied they would. And now Christians are no longer under the Jewish umbrella. Uh, Jewish Christians could say, well, we're, we're Jews. We're in the synagogue, we're kind of a church within a church, believers in Christ within the synagogue. Now they're cast out, they're pushed out of the synagogue. Christianity and Judaism are now distinct religions. And now the empire says, we have a long-standing contract with Judaism that because they have ancient laws that forbid them from participating in the Roman cult, we tolerate that. What's your law? Uh, well, the, the, uh, you don't have the laws of Moses, right? Yeah. Well, do, does, your, does your Jesus say anything about... They say, yeah, we can't participate in idol feasts and so forth. Who is this Jesus? Who, it's all recent. This isn't, this isn't a historic faith like Judaism. This is, and so now Christians are, are really suffering. And that's why uh, Jesus distinguishes between the true and false synagogue. It's interesting. True and false church. The tr true and false synagogue. And uh, he commends them for their, for their suffering. So... Smyrna is one of the churches that gets approval, right? Um, I mentioned that there's a chiasm. You don't need to under, understand uh, the details. But the point is, churches 2 and 6 receive approval. Churches 1 and 7 are warned of imminent excommunication. Uh, Pergamum was Satan's throne, Jesus called it. Um, the first city in, the, in Asia Minor, or what we call Turkey, uh, to build a temple to a Roman emperor, Augustus, now the Roman cult. It's the capital of the Roman cult, which Jesus has the temerity to call Satan's throne. Uh, and only the emperor had the right of sword, as it was called, the right of of, of execution, but Jesus says, I'm coming with a sword. <laughs> yeah, get these, these, these echoes again and again of Jesus saying, I am Caesar's Lord. I am 
the king of kings. Uh, he also uh, warns them about you know, what happened in the Old Testament with Balaam when he, he led Israel astray by leading them to pagan wives who were uh, very aggressive in evangelizing them into, into paganism, just as Paul did, you know, warned that that's, that's, what's, happening, uh, that's what's happening here. Um, I have to, um, I just a few months ago was uh, walking through the catacombs in Alexandria, which are before the ones in Rome. And you see the transition from, from pagan catacombs where people were buried to Christian catacombs where Christians worshipped and were also buried. Uh, and, and we had a wonderful Muslim guide. And, and I asked him, I said, uh, you know, all, all these, uh, there's Hermes Trimid, just as there are all these people I, you know, been reading about, these are, this is wild, they're sculpted beautifully. If you were rich, you had a really rich sculpture. So why, why, why did, uh, this is a Christian tomb. He, uh, one example, this is, a Christian was buried here with his family. So why didn't they get rid of, why didn't they destroy the, the pagan e- Greco-Egyptian frescoes and sculptures? And he said, come over here and look. And he said, do you see here where, uh, where uh, the, um, uh, the goddess with the, with, with the uh, snakes in her hair? Medusa. Medusa? You see, this is Medusa. You can't really tell, can you? I said, no, not, not really. Uh, it's all broken off. He says, yeah, her magic is broken off. They didn't need to do anything else. That said it all. The magic is broken. We don't care. Beautiful walls. Beautiful sculptures. They're, they're not religious to us at all. He was Muslim. I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, the magic was broken. Um, the, as Paul says, the, the gods are nothing. The idols are nothing. But it really shows you that there, there was a transition here at this point Wherever Christianity was spreading, where it was, there were some Christians who said, why can't we go to the banquet where they pinch a little incense to Caesar? Why can't we eat, uh, participate in, the, in idol feasts as long as we you know, behave ourselves? And so Pergamum was the compromised church, the compromised church. For Thyatira, the adulterous church. The adulterous church. Uh, and and that's, that's why there are references to Jezebel who led Ahab into idolatry. Um, there is a prophetess being tolerated who actually, it seems like from the letter, she is probably a cult prostitute fr- from the old cult prostitution. Um, and of the mystery religions, and she became part of the church, and she's giving these prophecies, she's a prophetess, and she is encouraging Christians to still participate in this cult prostitution. When we think about how bad the church is today, just, you know, remember these churches. 
you know, I don't know how many seminarians would, would like any one of these as their first call, um, except maybe uh, Ephesus and, and uh, uh, Smyrna. And then there is, uh, uh, you know, he talks about white garments. I will, I, will, I will give them white garments. What does that mean? Well, here's, this might illuminate a little bit, an inscription from Stratonikea in the first century at this very time. People bring sacrifices, burn incense in censers, and sing songs of praise. And then the, the inscription says, the council has decided as follows. Henceforth, 30 young men shall be chosen from the noble families who shall be led into the council uh, chamber every day by the pedonomos, the leader of children, ruler of children, along with the public guard of boys. They shall be clothed in white, crowned with olive branches, and bear olive branches in their hands. These boys will be accompanied by a zither player and in the presence of a herald shall sing hymns of praise determined by the secretary, the son of Diomedes. Um, so, sounds like a church service, almost. Uh, and they're, but they're wearing white and they're wearing a crown. This is the language shows you that what was going on at the time is what Jesus is drawing upon to help people understand the, the greater crown of life, the greater robes of white that they have uh, waiting for them. And then um, Philadelphia, the faithful church. The faithful church. And he, he, he references Isaiah 22, 22. We won't go there. But this faithful servant will be given. This faithful servant, the unfaithful servant will be cast out. And the faithful servant, Eliakim, is going to be given the key of David. It will be transferred to him. The key of David is unlocked everything. The palaces, the king's treasury. Uh, and so it was kind of like a scepter. He's going to be given the, the key of, of David. And we should think of Matthew 16, 18, John 20, where Jesus says, I give you the keys of the kingdom to the apostles. Uh, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. The, the keys lock and unlock. Open the kingdom of heaven, shut the kingdom uh, to others. That happens, for instance, when the pastor gives the absolution. I declare you, to you in the name of Christ and on the authority of his word, your sins are forgiven. It's acting as a, a notary, as an ambassador um, of Jesus Christ himself. He has given these keys to his church. But he has... He has the key of David, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. In other words, he'll have power over life and death. You have little strength. You're suffering. But Philadelphia, you're holding on. And, you know, in your suffering, don't forget, right now you have an open door, he says. An open door. This is a big thing, you know, uh, here, open doors and closed doors we often refer to. Oh, here, open, an open door is, 
you know, there were a lot of times when churches didn't have an open door. So they couldn't evangelize uh, because it was, it was unwise for that moment. Wait until you have an open door. But when that door opens, run through it. Be ready. When you have, so Jesus is saying, you're suffering, but you have an open door to evangelism. Don't forget that. Don't just, you know, wait for the next day of news of somebody in, in the church suffering. Go out there and preach the gospel no matter what. Philadelphia is the faithful church. Finally, finally today, uh, Laodicea, the useless church. <laughs> uh, poor Laodicea. They get all the, you know. Um, it was, it was uh, they had a famous medical school there, and they were known for medical cures. For example, there's a so-called Phrygian powder. The area is called is Phrygia. It's a Phrygian powder that was made there for an eye salve to cure eyes, uh, uh, eye illnesses. And they were known for it. And so that's why Jesus... Now let's go back to uh, Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot but cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Isn't that what we heard this morning? You think you're rich, but you're really pitiable, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In 60 uh, AD, there was a major earthquake and uh, a lot of earthquakes in Turkey. Uh, there was a major earthquake, and, and uh, much of Laodicea was destroyed. But they very quickly built it up because they were very rich and proud people. They had a lot of commerce. They were well-known, not just for their medicine, but also for their luxury items. Laodicea had it all going for them. They were arrogant. And as usually happens, churches take on complexions of their local environment. To always, you know, think about what is it in our particular culture right now. California culture differs from Nevada culture. You know, that, that particularly presses against us because each of these churches has a, a different tendency based on its circumstance, so it's arrogant. Um, and... Uh, this church was very important. Epaphras founded all of these churches, Colossae, uh, 
this is Paul's sidekick. Uh, Epaphras uh, was the missionary planter for Laodicea and Colossae and, uh, and other churches. In fact, in Colossians, quickly here, in Colossians, at the end, we read, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. That's, those are the very descriptions Jesus uses of these seven spirits, of these messengers. Faithful witness, servant in the Lord. Epaphras, verse 12 of chapter 4, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of Laodicea and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill your ministry that you have received in the Lord. So this is, gives us a little bit of a window into uh, the Laodicean church, not far from Colossae and not far from Hierapolis, which he mentions there. Now, Hierapolis was known for its hot water, its, its, uh, its um, mineral baths and its... its uh, it's, uh, what do you call them? The hot springs. And so people would go there, you know, benefit from the, 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 the heat of those springs. And people could also, you know, they, they could bathe. They could, I mean, it was like a luxury to have that kind of hot water. Hierapolis had cold water. And it was really good, really clean, really pure. Very good cold water that people could drink from. And in its pride and its, its, its commercial success and wealth, Laodicea decided to build a pipeline between Hierapolis and Colossae so that they could have hot and cold water in homes. So they built the pipeline. But they could never actually get the hot and the cold. It was lukewarm. Therefore, completely unusable. Jesus compares the church of Laodicea to that pipeline. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And, and you know what that kind of water's good for? Spitting out. And so that's what he threatens, exactly what he threatens to spit them out. They're on, the, they're on the edge. Okay, so how do they overcome? He, in all of the letters, Jesus says, if you, you know, if you return to your first love, or if you, you will overcome, and I'll, get, I'll give you the crown of life. How do they overcome? What's really significant is the ones that receive the approval should probably indicate to us how we overcome. How did they overcome? 
First of all, by hearing the word. He who has an ear, let him hear. They heard. They heard the word. And they also supped with Jesus. I think in, 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 uh, at the end here with the Laodiceans, it says, uh, I, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone uh, opens, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about his presence with them. I will, I will be there with you in the Lord's Supper. Um, what, a, what, a precious, what a precious promise. So word and sacrament. Preserving the word, hearing the word, preserving the word, and witnessing the word. Okay, not just hearing it, not just preserving it, but witnessing the word to others. In an evangelistic, missionary people. Um, sometimes we, we, we joke, we, 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 uh, let, we let others evangelize uh, people, and then and then we teach them. You know, there are different churches for different times in people's lives, and, and it's like no. The evangel evangelizing churches should be teaching. I mean, that's the great commission: teaching them everything I've commanded you. And the churches that preach the word, administer the sacraments, teach should. It should begin with evangelism. Uh, hearing the word, preserving the word, and witnessing the word, yet overcoming through suffering. That's the paradox we live in between Christ's two comings. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be triumphant. And at the end of it all, the Son of Man will come on the clouds and gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. It's, it's glorious. He, he prophesies a period, until his second coming, a, a period of great success around the whole world, gathering people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and people and nation over whom he is the king. What a wonderful vision. And it's going to happen while they're going to throw you out of the synagogues. They're going to stone you. They're going to uh, harass you. And everywhere you go, they're going to want to persecute you and so on and so forth. That's the paradox. The paradox is, it's the great tribulation and a glorious period. <laughs> and that's exactly what these two churches represent to us. They are faithful sufferers. They are suffering persecution. They're pushed down pushed under, but they are not turning from Jesus for the popularity of the world. They're not compromising. They're not committing spiritual adultery. They're overcoming. They're overcoming simply by being recipients of a kingdom, not by building one. By receiving a kingdom and sharing that gift with others. What a, what a wonderful promise. Whoever, whoever, even in Laodicea, repents. I'll come in and have dinner with him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's not for, for non-Christians. This is for the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Let me in. You've shut me out. 
I don't know what you're doing in there. Have a chess club or something. But uh, yeah, I'm out here. (laughs) You've left me out. Why don't you let me in? Because it's all about Christ. Any questions or comments or Yeah. I really appreciate this, Dr. Forges. Thank you. I just wanted to connect a dot to what you said to what we'll be looking at next week in the last verse in chapter three. It says uh, The throne the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Right. And just recognizing what you said and what I said the first week and what we're going to connect to is that Revelation is about the ruling and reigning Savior now. Yeah. He said. He's, he said he's already conquered and sat down with his Father. And then the very next vision is going to be first of the Father in the throne room and then the Son in the throne room. And that Revelation should give us incredible confidence. He's ruling and reigning. Yeah, now. Yeah. It's going to be crazy between the tick of my first coming and the talk of my second, but you're exactly right. Christ is there present with this church and it's telling us that. It's not this yep. might happen later or it will happen when I return. No, it's, hap- it's now. Yep. Turns right to it in the next vision. Yeah. yeah. Great point. And, and isn't it beautiful when he says uh, will sit with me, not with me on his, on his own throne. You'll, you know, you'll sit with me on your own throne. You'll sit with me on my throne. Just as I sit on the Father's throne. Oh my goodness, we have no idea what we're, what privilege, what a privilege we already possess, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Can't wait for next week. This week was delicious. We we do this with each other. We just, you know. Any any other questions? Does this make sense? Uh, I mean, this is, doesn't this make more sense? Does it, what we call the amillennial perspective, just kind of traditional meat and potatoes, than trying to figure out what church age we're in represented by which of these churches. All of these churches. We have, we have some of the DNA represented by all of these churches in this church. The good, the bad. We have to, we have to be, realize that the church Every church, all churches in all ages, in all times, in all places are being referred to. This is, this is the whole church between Christ's two comings. So, so how did it get from this rich, I'm in tears here, to uh, planes in the sky? I mean, how... <laughs> That's a different question, Angela. That's yeah, that's a, going into the history of the rise of, of dispensationalism, John Nelson Darby, and um, it really, I was raised in it. I thought that, that everyone who wasn't was liberal. They didn't read the Bible literally, and we did. And I thought, this is just historic Christianity. It's what everybody I knew, everybody my parents knew, when we went to Bible. Uh, prophecy conferences and so forth. That's what we heard. Um, but it's actually new. It's a new teaching that arose in the middle of the 19th century that had never been taught 
even by various sects throughout the church. Uh, but it was very, it's very close to uh, Wacoma Fiore. Um, won't go there right now. A 12th century uh, Franciscan monk who really came up with a very similar millennial system. Um, but yeah, it, traditionally over, you know, uh, since the early church, Christians have, uh, the dominant position has been amillennial. That is not, not, it's a bad term because it's a, just no millennium. No, the millennium is figuratively, symbolically a thousand years, which is 10 to the third power, completion to the third power. Um, complete, complete, super complete. And Christians have historically interpreted that as, yeah, it's a, it's a kingdom, but it's now. From the time Jesus ascended to the time he returns. Um, and that, that, that's Matthew 24. That's Jesus' Olivet Discourse. It's going to be like this, and then there are earthquakes, and lots of stuff happening. And then, but the gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. And then he returns in the clouds of glory. That's all we're looking forward to now. We're not looking forward to, you know, reading the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other and trying to figure out what God is doing from decoding things in the book of Revelation. Rather, we're waiting for Christ's coming. This is for every age of the church that is suffering. But if it isn't primarily for that generation, we haven't read it right. This is primarily written to uh, encourage those who are under the suffering heel of Caesar and their Jewish, uh, their Jewish family and friends. All right, thanks.